It's episode five of Dealing Death. This is Mike Magnoli reporting. My search for Shategra Hunter has been fruitless. She won't respond to messages on Facebook, and every number that I've found for her has been disconnected a long time ago. And I went to the Walgreens where she used to work. You know the one. Well, they say that she doesn't work there anymore. And breaking news, Javon's attorney, who I talked to last episode, Jack, he's just filed a motion to withdraw from the case because he's not getting paid. The legal bills are stacking up and Javon's family hasn't held up their end of the bargain. At least that's what his motion says. Now, it's not uncommon for lawyers to divorce their clients, but this means more delays, for sure. On the plus side, for me, a new attorney coming onto the case could give me some new momentum, right? There's potential for more cooperation with this podcast. Let's say maybe the new attorney tells McFarlane he should talk. Talking to a reporter doing a podcast can help in the long run. Just look at Adnan Syed from Serial. He's out of jail. I'm not as earthy crunchy as Sarah, but God, I love her. Okay, so you may know that Serial involved a murder in a teenaged circle. They were all high schoolers. And now I'd like to talk about a case on the other side of Florida, a drug overdose that resulted in first-degree murder charges, and the victim there was a teenager. 17. She was just a year younger than the victim in Serial, Heyman Lee. The girl in this story that we're going to focus on in this episode was named Katie Golden. She was in high school. She attended Plant High School. That's in the Tampa Bay area. Investigators say a drug dealer who went by the nickname Yoda was selling to the kids in the school. And even some of the most popular kids, even some of the most successful kids, were using street drugs recreationally. Katie Golden was a cheerleader, also a talented artist. She painted, she liked drawing, and she was the only child in her family. She died just a few weeks shy of her high school graduation. She died on Good Friday, April 14, 2017. Now, Katie Golden had a boyfriend, a guy named Titan Goodson. Titan lived with his grandparents in their condo, and on the night of Katie's death, boyfriend and girlfriend had a secret sleepover. Yeah, grandma and grandpa didn't even know she was in the home. Titan woke them up, terrified, and told them that his girlfriend Katie was having a medical emergency. Detectives would soon figure out Titan and Katie had gone to Yoda's house. They had picked up heroin laced with fentanyl, and they were using it. Titan was first charged with manslaughter in connection with his girlfriend's death. He would eventually take a plea deal. And just like in the Javon McFarland case on the Treasure Coast, detectives followed the clues, call records, text messages, and Titan's statements, and it didn't take them long to figure out who Yoda was. Yoda was a dude in his 30s, Garland Ryan Layton. Layton was charged with a death by distribution law. Hillsborough County, State Attorney, Andrew Warren, prosecuting. So Melanie gave you a preview of what we're talking about today? She did. Okay. So uh, my first question for you um, is how many cases in your county um, involving a fentanyl overdose have been charged as a first-degree murder? Uh, so we've charged in total nine cases under that statute, 78204. Um, as murder one, six of those cases involved fentanyl. Um, and out of the nine, six are still pending and three of them have been closed. For the three, three 
the three the three closed. One was resolved, and two the defendants died. Wow. Yeah. Um, what are some of the challenges of using this statute and proceeding this way through the system? The biggest challenge is finding the right balance between culpability and punishment. And that's complicated by the need to build cases against people who are more culpable. So in a situation where we've caught, you know, a street level dealer and can potentially charge them under this statute with murder, what's the goal in terms of how do we get the supplier who is above that person who is more culpable? How do we get, you know, the kingpin above that person? So that's the difficulty in these cases is finding that balance. This phone interview was recorded in late July 2022. Now, I had no way of knowing this at the time. This is pretty wild in hindsight. Very shortly after this telephone conversation, Andrew Warren was suspended by Governor DeSantis, essentially fired. Andrew had made public statements about not prosecuting women over abortion or reproductive choices. He was bucking against what Governor DeSantis had said. You see, Governor DeSantis said that on the heels of Roe v. Wade being overturned, Florida was going to pass new anti-abortion laws, and the fallout on that issue is ongoing. Andrew is fighting to get his position back, and since he was voted into the state attorney's office in an election, the voters put him there twice, actually, he argues that the governor does not have the legal grounds to just boot him out. Now, I'm not going to go too much further into this, but it's just my damn luck. One attorney in the story wants to divorce his client, and this attorney, he's caught up in a battle with the governor, and he gets canned. Okay, let's go back to the Garland Layton case. You know, this case, what we had at the time was uh, the boyfriend, a young girl who overdosed, Katie Golden, and her boyfriend was at the scene. Now, he was not 18 at the time, so he could not have been charged under this statute. But what we did is we... Uh, we charged him with manslaughter, uh, which was a innovative, uh, under an innovative legal theory, but one that was certainly tenable. It's just one that had not been used in a very long time in the state of Florida. In order to put pressure on him to uh, get him to cooperate so that we could charge the person who was actually selling, uh, selling the drugs to kids, including the drugs that killed Katie Golden. And so we ended up charging him with manslaughter. We survived, uh, you know, pretrial litigation on that where the defense was trying to have the case thrown out. And once we knew that that case was going to trial and the defendant was willing to cooperate, we ended up reaching an appropriate resolution and securing his cooperation so we could go after the more culpable person who is the dealer selling to kids. And that's Leighton? And that's Leighton. Now, Layton's case, it's, it's set for trial August 30th of this year. Wow. Okay. Does he have a public defender, or was he able to get private counsel? I don't recall offhand. I can get back to you on that. Does he have a criminal history? Um, has he ever been in trouble before? He does, and I can give you the specifics of it. I just don't recall all of his criminal history offhand. So what's on the table if he's convicted for a penalty? Well, anyone charged under that statute, uh, 782.04, it's first-degree murder. So first-degree murder in Florida is punishable by life in prison without the possibility of parole. 
it's actually a capital offense. I mean, in theory, you could charge someone, you could seek the death penalty in those cases. You know, I, I once heard a speech from former President Trump, and he was talking about this, and, and he said that he believed that the death penalty should be on the table. I wonder what you make of that, sir. Uh, well, I, I don't... I disagree with that. Um, the death penalty is not appropriate in the typical case like this. You know, it's conceivable that we could conjure up some extreme factual scenario where maybe it would be. But the law in Florida provides guidance as to what crimes are eligible for the death penalty. That is, what capital offenses are appropriate for the death penalty. And it's hard to imagine an overdose case fitting that profile. You know, when you're talking to the jury and you have to lay this out for them, um, I wonder if those who are, you know, under your, your supervision in your office, like, how, how do you explain to the jury that even though this person didn't point a gun, pull the trigger, um, and kill this person in, in cold blood, we're still proceeding this way? How do, you, how do you get people to wrap their heads around that? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, the legal theory is relatively straightforward. The law says that, um, you know, if you were distributing the drug that caused the proximate death of somebody, then you're guilty of murder. But jurors are people, not robots. So they're just not going to automatically follow what the law is without thinking about, um, you know, the appropriate level of culpability and punishment. And jurors' job is not just to figure out who did what, but they understand uh, culpability and punishment, and they'll often voice their disagreement with the severity of a charge or a sentence by finding a lesser included offense. And so we see that happening with these cases. Um, with we see that happen often in murder cases that end up with a manslaughter convictions, where the jury felt like a murder conviction would be too harsh, even though it may have fit the letter of the law. Just to dovetail off something that you said, the proximate cause of death. A lot of times with um, drug addicts or people that are sort of involved in that, there are underlying health problems and there are other things going on. So I understand there was an effort um, in Tallahassee to change the language of the statute um, so that it would be easier to bring these cases. Um, do you know what the status of that is? And do you think that that was or is a good idea? Yeah, the law changed, and it's now a substantial factor rather than uh, proximate cause. Um, I, I was fine with that legal change. You know, I think it simplified, it, it clarified the meaning um, for juries, for jurors. And so proximate cause is really a legal term that sometimes is hard for juries to understand. Substantial factor is a little bit more straightforward. And when you're dealing with a situation where a medical examiner can't definitively opine that it was this drug as opposed to the combination of five drugs that somebody took that caused the death, then there's a difficulty in proving the proximate cause. Whereas if we know that this one drug, which is under the schedule on, on the statute, was a substantial factor, then they could still be found guilty of murder. Do you think that but at the, the end of the day, the change in the law was to make it easier for juries to understand what they were being asked to rule on? 
Do you think that this is resonating with drug dealers? Do they do they know that if they continue to sell, um, that this is on the table for them? I think they know. I don't think they care. Um, you know, this this is a a relatively new legal tool, and its effectiveness as a tool is based on how we wield it. I mean, charging every single person possible under the statute with murder one, punishable by life in prison and nothing else, would be imprudent. It'd be a waste of resources. It would result in disproportionate punishments. I mean, the example of two 18-year-olds who are, you know, using heroin together and one of them dies, um, that's not the appropriate case to charge somebody, to sentence somebody to prison for the rest of their lives. But there are other times where it is, you know, in the latent case where someone was intentionally selling to kids, where in cases where we have knowledge that someone is uh, selling drugs that have fentanyl in them, we've charged cases where there was dialogue between the seller and the user, uh, where the user is saying, hey, I don't want fentanyl in this, and there was fentanyl in it, and the person overdosed and died. And so there, there are lots of different factual scenarios with this. But like with any other statute, its, it's effectiveness rests in the hands of the prosecutors who are wielding it. The other thing that's worth mentioning about this is we don't want to discourage people from reporting overdoses. You know, we want good Samaritans, and there is a good Samaritan law in Florida that encourages people to seek medical assistance when there's an overdose. And at the end of the day, we want to save lives and we want people to pick up the phone and call 911 to save somebody's daughter or son or brother or sister. But we don't want people worried about the legal consequences of doing so. We just want them to call for help. Good point. Um, but I'd like to ask you about, I, I know that a lot of times these drugs are changing hands. So if you charge a defendant with first degree murder, um, they could say, well, I didn't know what was in it when I got it, or I gave it to somebody else and they put fentanyl in it, not me. Have you ever seen that come from the defense table in any one of these cases? We haven't yet because we haven't seen one of those cases go to trial, but that's certainly a, a you know a plausible theory. Um, that is meaning that's something that the defense is likely to argue at some point. Uh, you know the. There's no intent requirement in the statute. It's just when a person dies as a result of the unlawful distribution of any of these controlled substances where it's you know, a substantial factor in the death. So you're gonna have to prove that there was knowledge, um, but we, you know, we have that proof requirement in so many cases we have. You, know, you have to prove someone knew that they were selling marijuana, not parsley. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, it's it's hard to comprehend that because you hear first degree, and for so many people, that suggests premeditation, right? That the guy planned it in advance, um, and this is kind of it's a little bit sticky, right? My, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a great point. I mean, first degree murder is not limited to premeditated murder uh, in Florida. So premeditated murder is one type of first degree murder, but there's also first degree felony murder and there's uh, murder resulting from distributing uh, distributing and overdosing on certain uh, certain drugs. 
the drug problem, do you feel like it's getting worse? Is it getting any better? Is it too early in the process of being able to wield this tool, as you say, to, to know if it is effective? Well, we know that the drug problem has been getting worse in recent years. You know, we're up over a thousand overdose deaths annually in Hillsborough County, over a hundred thousand nationally. Uh, estimates are that uh, a majority, close to two thirds of those, uh, have to do with opioids and opiates. Um, we can't arrest our way out of the opioid epidemic. I mean, it's common sense that the best time to deal with this is long before anyone has died. And prosecution is a back-end approach, and it's a necessary part uh, of the approach to, to stop this problem. But the crisis is bigger than this one law. I mean, to save lives, really, we need front-end preventive solutions that people aren't dying in the first place. The victim in the Garland Layton case, um, I'm sure you're in regular touch with her family. Um, do you think they would want to talk about this story? Do you think they would participate? I'm sorry, you're breaking up a little bit on me. I know you were asking about I'm in touch with the, the family, the Golden family, but I missed the question. Do you think that they would want to be interviewed for this? Do you think that they would want their voices heard in this story? It's a series that I'm producing um, about charging drug dealers with first-degree murder, and I wonder if you think that I should reach out to them. I, I can't speak for them. I mean, we're happy to contact them for you. I know that they have given multiple interviews, so they've certainly been inclined in the past to do it. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll definitely... You know, I'll tell you, when, when, you know, I talk with the Goldens or, or any other uh, family members who've lost a loved one, you know, it's, it's personal. I'm a father and a member of this community. And so any homicide case, especially with a young victim, is personal. And when I'm talking with those families and I look at the crisis that's going on, I'm glad that we have this tool in our toolkit. But it's a very specific tool that works only in very specific situations. Yeah, I see your point. She... She was a beautiful girl. I've seen her picture. Um, I know a little bit about it. And um, I think for any parent, you know, there's there's so much of this out there and the idea that, oh, wow, it's just teenagers and they're experimenting. And it's like the, the scene has changed so radically over the past couple of years. And you just don't know what's in, in that shit on the street. And I wonder... Um, how do parents talk to their kids about that? How do, how do they say um, that this decision that you're making, um, you, you might not think it's of any consequence, but you could pay for this with your life? You know, parents need to be honest with their kids about it. They need to have age-appropriate conversations about the choices that kids make, um, especially when they're talking about doing drugs and you know the types of drugs and the, the dangers that are out there. I mean, just one mistake can cost you your life. As we've already established, drug use affects all of the lives around you too. I'm pausing here because I've just gotten a text message from Iris, the mother of the victim in the Javon McFarland case. That's Yunella's mom, you remember her. She tells me her only surviving daughter, whom I met at her house, Elisel, she just collapsed. She nearly died. No oxygen was getting to the brain. Ira says she was in a coma and there's likely permanent damage. She's lost big portions of her memory. Please tell me this is not drug related, I write. 
Yes, drug-related. The death of the first sister created a domino effect, and now the third has nearly died. This has got to be one of the bleakest and most frustrating stories I've ever touched. Iris has her hands full with the kids, and now the daughter is disabled. That was the only surviving daughter after Yunella and Caressa. You start to feel like the train has derailed, and there's no getting it back on the tracks. And I have a prediction. At some point, Javon McFarlane is going to think again, more seriously this time, about changing his plea. With Jack Fleischman dumping him, his next attorney might strongly advise that. As of right now, though, Javon is still pleading not guilty. Back to Garland Layton. He changed his plea at the last hour, right as the trial was supposed to start. He made a deal, enter a guilty plea, so he wouldn't get a life sentence. And they downgraded the charge to manslaughter. So it was a guilty plea on that, not first-degree murder. So he'll spend the next 10 years in a state prison, followed by probation for seven years. Here's the last part of my phone call with state attorney Andrew Warren. And keep in mind, we were talking right before he was ousted by Governor DeSantis. We were talking right before Garland Layton did the deal. One of Andrew's assistant state attorneys made the bargain. But listen here, listen carefully. It's as if Andrew was predicting that in this part of the conversation. I'm working on a story of a case um, on the Treasure Coast where the defendant, to my knowledge, doesn't have any kind of violent criminal history. Um, and here he is, he's being charged with first degree murder. At some point, someone in his family should have told him, you might not think that you're hurting anybody by moving this stuff, but you're killing people and you could go to jail for the rest of your life. Um, so when we're talking about having the conversation with your kids, it's not just about using drugs, but it's about the risk of selling them too. Right. And, and in these cases, you know, often the goal is to reach, as I said from the beginning, it's about balancing culpability and punishment uh, while trying to build cases against more culpable people. You know, the, we've charged several of these cases with murder one, the one case that we've resolved so far was resolved for manslaughter, which was the appropriate outcome in that case. And manslaughter is arguably the appropriate outcome in a lot of these cases. And I think in the few cases you've seen come to resolution around the state, that's what you're seeing. Yeah, good point. Is there anything that I'm not asking you that you think I should ask you that's relevant on this topic? Um... You know, I, I know there's some people who think that uh, we should be turning a blind eye to this um, because it's people who are choosing to use and the people who are selling are not, you know, intentionally killing people. Um, but the reality is that my job is to do everything possible to protect our community. And that means protecting people from overdosing and holding accountable the people who are responsible for the overdose. And so anytime we have, you know, we've lost a person, we can't bring back that precious life, but we can hold accountable the people responsible for their death. How long have you been in this role, sir? Uh, five and a half years. Have you ever been on the defense side or have you always been a prosecutor? I, early in my career, I worked at a law firm where I did, uh, I did criminal defense, but it was 
mostly white-collar criminal offense, but I've been a prosecutor most of my career. You know, some people might say, how could an attorney defend a scumbag like that? Why do these drug dealers, um, why are they entitled to a defense? What would you say to that person who has that sort of knee-jerk reaction to the story? Well, I mean, I think you're better off asking a, a criminal defense lawyer, a public defender, than a prosecutor. But I'll tell you, you know, I have tremendous respect for uh, our defense lawyers whose allegiance is to the Constitution and to make sure that every single person, no matter what they did, no matter what they're accused of, has their constitutional rights protected. It's ironic we're talking about protecting constitutional rights. Andrew Warren says his were violated when Governor DeSantis removed him from office. And as this podcast is released, Andrew Warren is fighting back in a trial in Tallahassee. This, as the Javon McFarland case, is getting further delayed. Thanks for listening.